Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. I'd also like to give a shout out to Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking at crossriver.com crypto. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And joining us on the show today are two very special guests. I'm so happy they made the time, carved out the time from being irresponsibly long to talk to us today about some pretty big news out of the firm. We have Michael Anderson and Vance Spencer, the co-founders of Framework Ventures. And hopefully, if you're a reader of theblockcrypto.com, you will know that Framework Ventures recently unveiled a new $400 million fund with a special focus on blockchain gaming. Framework Ventures has a very interesting, long origin story from the from humble beginnings. We can maybe talk about that. But now we're managing, what, 100, or um, excuse me, $1.4 billion in AUM. Welcome to the show, guys. Great to have Vance back on, of course. And Michael, thanks for being on. Thanks for, Thanks having, for us. having us. Good to be here. It's really a, a thrilling pleasure. So you guys are kind of, you know, you got you guys made this news. Why are you betting big on blockchain gaming? What's the idea, the thesis behind that? I mean, the thesis behind that is effectively that we're now at the point where there's multiple blockchains that have 20 cent transactions. We now have custodial experiences where we can onboard, you know, people who don't know or, or really use crypto today. And gaming is the world's biggest market. There's 3 billion people who play games. There's 1.5 billion people who have an internet connection that make less than $5 a day. You know, what do you think they're going to go do when these play to earn games come out? You know, they're, they're going to go play them. And, and maybe it starts with, you know, a trickle and turns into a flood. But, you know, the end game for crypto and really any technology that seeks to have mass adoption always goes through a gaming paradigm. That's what all the Zoomers are playing. That's what all, what all Generation Alpha are playing. Now, that's where the math works, you know, most favorably for us and our investments. And so, it's now just a recognition of, you know, we've gone gone deep through DeFi, we've done middleware, we've done kind of social crypto. It now feels like the time is right for gaming. And you know, most of these investments were funded about a year or a year and a half ago. You know, the first generation of of the play to earn games, and we're going to see at the end of the year, you know, how good they are, what amount of iterations they need. But 
we're right at the crest of these things starting to become real. And, and that's why we're so excited. You guys were really early on DeFi. So I'd say maybe not as early on GameFi, but to an extent or gaming, blockchain gaming. But you can learn from maybe past mistakes. What What are you looking for in terms of where you're going to place your bets, Michael, based off of everything we've seen over the past year with, with Axie and the rest of them? Well, I was just about to say, you know, we, I think, arguably, we're one of the first funds to go all in on DeFi in, in 2019 and 2020, mostly from a recognition that it looked like the product market fit category winner for blockchains at the time was going to be DeFi applications. And right now, we, we have, to Vance's point, the infrastructure, the tooling, the user experiences that are getting to the point of mass market appeal, where you can actually have 100 million potential monthly active players of games. And we're, we're right around the corner from that being viable. And it also feels like 2019, 2020 for DeFi in the, in the respect of Axie being really kind of the only example that we have of a game that's hit scale to date. You know, Play to Earn was defined by Axie and they get all the credit for that. But where they are right now is that they're going back to the drawing board and having to reinvent the game. They've, they've invented this play to earn concept. And really where we see gaming over the next couple of years and some of the investments that we've made, some of the things that we're seeing on the infrastructure side are enabling this skill-based game, entertaining game, high fidelity, three-dimensional graphics, you know, 4K, 60 FPS type gameplay that you would see on a PC or a console but retaining the elements of play to earn. And, and really that combinatorial effect is something, you know, the transition that we predict will, will move from play to earn into play and earn, where it's more that you want to be playing the game because it's a really fun and engaging game. You get to compete at the highest levels and you get to play in the economy in, in the same ways that you get to with Axie. And so, so that's the stuff that we're shooting for when we say we're, we're looking at gaming over the next few years. Yeah, but it is still pretty challenging, clunky, and expensive for average Joes like me to engage with some of these games. Sometimes you have to bridge um, between different chains. Super intuitive right now. What's going to be the unlock that makes it intuitive for simpletons like me? One of the other big themes that that we're betting on for this fund is just exactly what you're saying, you know, making the experience for onboarding, you know, non-crypto people just orders of magnitude easier. And the things that we're super excited about are um, things like Slide, which is a startup we just funded where they literally do everything from the payments to the bridging to the actual, you know, smart contract interactions in a totally custodial fashion, which abstracts really the need to go to OpenSea or download MetaMask or, or do any of the things that have historically turned people off from crypto. And so, that is the stuff that's kind of evolving in the background while these games are being built. And we think they're roughly going to kind of ship at the same time, you know, call it a year, a year and a half. And we'll have both these custodial experiences and we'll have these games that people want to want to play. And and kind of to Michael's earlier point, Axie, you know, if you were to comp it, you know, with DeFi and, and a specific project, I would say Axie is probably like the compound token launch where they started to prove it. Everyone got really excited. Everyone's looking around saying, OK, yep, that's the playbook. The only difference is that with DeFi, it takes about three weeks to, you know, copy and fork a protocol. With games, it takes, you know, a year and a half, two years. And so there's a gestation period here and it's going to take a little bit. But, you know, the custodial experiences will definitely help bootstrap these use cases. And it, it almost, you know, we don't really see a way for it to happen without them. You know, all of the game loops, all of the things that are 
super important that these game developers break without these custodial experiences. And so this is going to be the kind of paradigm through which all of the people initially come in. You know, at least that's our perspective. How did you pitch it to LPs? What was this sort of framing to get them to buy into this? Did you did you play Axie with them? What was the <laughs> what was the situation there? <laughs> Uh, we, we are definitely gamers, but we definitely uh, don't necessarily think our LPs are quite as integrated into the gaming ecosystem as we are. I, I think it's actually pretty obvious when you think about it. You know, to Vance's earlier point, there's three billion people who play games on a monthly basis. Uh, the gaming industry earns about $181 billion of revenue per year, and, and that's in 2021. That's more revenue than both the movies and music category combined. And so, you know, when we say that this is one of the, if not the largest market in the entire world, it, we're not kidding when we say that. And what we also see from boots on the ground perspective is this isn't just kind of an exploratory new computing platform or paradigm for the game development industry itself. You know, what's going on in the background of Web2 or, or mobile-based gaming is historically you, you have this thing called the IDFA, which is uh, a component within iOS and Android phones, which is used for advertising. And right now, that, that advertising element has been removed from the capabilities of app developers to target in the same ways that they've been able to target advertising. So the business model over the last six to nine months has been completely eviscerated for small to medium-sized game developers. And so those game developers aren't looking at blockchain as you know this new exploratory platform. They're looking at it as their only viable opportunity to build games for the next computing platform and maintain their business. And so it's it's more out of necessity than it is out of interest. And of course, it's experimental. It's it's new. It's it's clunky. And you know every complete computing platform before blockchain has also had the same experience when it comes to games. But it, it's really interesting talking to the the traditional game developers and, and them saying this is the next thing that I'm going to spend the next twenty years on. It's the only platform that's going to make sense. Uh, for me for that period of time. And and so it, it just becomes really obvious. So telling those stories is, you know, a pretty easy, easy selling point for any institutional LPs. There is this weird double-edged sword, right? When you think about what Web3 and crypto can bring to gaming, on the one side you have, for the first time, not just the game developers themselves to extract more value out of what they're doing, but also the gamers as well, right? Think about how much time people spend of their own, you know, time, not necessarily, and, but to an extent, capital too, buying the games and buying different skins or whatever have you, and then actually having access to that value, being able to leverage it, swap it, move it around. That's great. But it also adds this element of, of, of like financial complexity that didn't exist before insofar as if you're not managing it properly or you're not securing it properly uh, you you're not just gonna not level up or you're not just gonna um you know lose the game from a play playing perspective but you can actually lose money so it becomes sort of like this you know thing that is supposed to be fun but now is part of your financial picture i mean it's true and the thing that people don't really realize when you're building in web two, you're kind of, you don't really have live ammunition. You know, if you get hacked, you know, you're losing somebody's email address or you're losing somebody's phone number. If you get hacked in web three, you know, the, the bullets are real, you know, you, th that's somebody's financial well-being, and, you know, seeing things like the Ronin hack just illustrates how early we are. And 
it's just heartbreaking that, you know, those are people who probably can't afford to lose that type of money. And, and yet, you know, it's, it's gone and it looks like it was a, a state sponsored actor. And so it's not coming back. You know, the U S isn't going to be able to, to get that money back. And, you know, these are the things that are such like blocking and tackling and, and maybe a little bit boring, but, you know, game developers don't know how to put things on chain. You know, they don't know how to build a, an unreal engine that talks to a smart contract. They don't know how to build the same feedback loops and, interesting game mechanics in a world where you have to go and download MetaMask and go to OpenSea to buy an NFT. And so, you know, those are all of the drawbacks. And, and those are the things where the infrastructure in this space is totally not ready for, for the amount of game developers that are coming. And, you know, we have a, a few portfolio companies that have hundreds of game developers in their pipelines that are trying to learn how to put things on chain or learn how to give their consumer, consumers a custodial wallet experience. But at the same time, you know, there's all these hurdles there's not a whole lot left for the indie game developers in the traditional gaming world. There's so much money in gaming, but only for a few very large studios. The rest of, of the people are kind of given scraps and and whatever they can get. And their only monetization opportunity is selling titles to these studios. And they hate that. All they want to do is build games that are compelling, that have some sort of longevity or at least the potential to be sustainable. And this is basically almost by process of elimination, the only place that these game developers will come. And so a lot of, you know, Michael and I's hypotheses on this space is there's going to be a lot of shots on goal. There's going to be a ton of money chasing this stuff. We're going to produce some sort of hit. It's just statistically likely. And so this is, you know, the future we're building and investing towards as a result. What are you doing with them, like alongside them? How are you helping them solve for some of these problems? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. The the first thing that Vance alluded to is security. And so talking to them about, you know, how do you actually manage bridges? How do you think about multi-sigs? How do you work with custodian solutions or providers that can enable these types of custodial solutions, wallets, services? Uh, because those are the things that matter most when it comes to potential death blows, to, to Vance's point on, on the live ammunition comment. You know, th those are potential death blows to smaller non-Axie Infinity games if they were to run through through the same issue. And, and so that's, you know, number one. And, and you know, security itself is more like a, a game of whack-a-mole. You're never going to be 100% secure, but you can can kind of give best practices and, and talk to them about what they should and shouldn't be doing. Then the other aspect, which I think, you know, to your other question, Frank, really goes back to what's the new development cycle and what's the new kind of team dynamic for game developers in Web3? And it's the same DNA that you have with Web2 web two game developers, but there's a there's a component that's really crucial now, which is effectively an economist, because you're working not only to define what the game is, make it really interesting, entertaining, and skill based, but you're also having to define an entire economy for this game. Which so interesting. Is, which is a whole new element. And it's not it's not a core competency that you see with most traditional game developers. There's like five or six people who developed sort of the free to play economies and everybody just sort of ripped and replaced the same elements in their game when they were developing them. And so having to go back to the drawing board to think about how do you think of an economy from, from the ground up and how do you define an engaging element that integrates into a game is really kind of the new elements that, that we spend a lot of time thinking about. We have someone on our team who uh, actually was one of, the, uh, one of the top board game designers. He also designed a number of games on, on the Survivor show for a couple of years. And, and he's someone who you know, we can just plug into a team and, and have him help think about, okay, what's the game? What are the elements? How do you make this engaging? How do you enhance the actual gameplay itself? Um, and so you know, not only is Advance and, and myself and everybody else on the team thinking about it, but, but it's something that we have on, the, on our team as a core competency and a specialist.
It's so interesting, right? It's something that I've thought about in a few different episodes, or I've tried to like tease this topic out, which is what does an economic crisis look like in a game or how do you solve for one, right? In analog world, you know, the Fed or other central banks have all of these levers with which they can play quantitative easing. I mean, we saw it all on display throughout the pandemic, you know, buying, you know, mortgage-backed securities, whatever have you. Now we're ramping up interest rates. We're, we're tightening uh, monetary policy. What does that look like in a game? Right? Are there stimmies sometimes? Yeah, airdrops. Oh, there's lots of stimmies. That, that's uh, that's what our industry is, is really known for with the tokens <laughs> to this point. But I mean, that that's an important point, and it kind of dovetails off of what Michael said. You know, and I'm going to throw out something that doesn't make sense just to illustrate a point. You know, there is no concept of the expansion or the contraction of the economy in Halo. You know, when me and you get online, you know, we'll go and play a multiplayer, you know, game. I'll shoot you in the head. You know, when the game ends, it's over. You know, that's really kind of all we take away. There is no persistent economic value that's created. But with Axie, you know, in games like Axie, you can have, you know, a, a feedback cycle where the there's more players. The NFTs get more expensive. SLP becomes more valuable because you need to use it to craft or battle or breed your cats. And, you know, it'll spin more uh, assets into the treasury, which when the treasury is fully capitalized, you know, with harder assets like ETH or cash, you know, then you have some optionality and you can kind of play the role of a central bank um, alongside the levers that you have with SLP and the price of the axes. But, but you know, that's obviously in the, in the upside case. In the downside case, when you have these things starting to unwind, which you see with Axie right now, where you know, the, uh, the NFTs become less valuable, SLB becomes less important, there's less assets in the treasury, you know, it doesn't make sense below a certain threshold for people to buy and play. You know, these are things where people haven't really had to design robust economies effectively ever. You know, really the only people who had to do it are, are central banks and, and some smaller, you know, things like EVE Online, you could argue is, is an early primitive. But, you know, this is the emerging design space where we're going to learn a lot from uh, well, hopefully we'll learn a lot from history, you know, what has worked and what has not worked. But we're also going to see a ton of these things blow up and just non-sustainable economies that are either based too heavily in the past of, you know, traditional Web 2 games where you have things like Fortnite V-Bucks, which don't really make a lot of sense in this context. And then you have on the other side, you know, people running the super aggressive, almost like Ohm-like Ponzi playbook to bootstrap activity. And some of these things are going to blow up and that's that's totally fine. But I think the point is, is that, you know, we will hit on the right permutation of, the superpowers of blockchain. And, and once they come together, it'll unlock something and that'll be very powerful, but it's going to be a lot of trial and error. Yeah. But it's a unique problem. Definitely a unique problem. Yeah. So you're not, you're, you're not um, interested in uh, Ponzi's. How did Ponzi become not a dirty word? I feel like crypto kind of reconfigured the meaning of Ponzi to something almost yeah popular or positive rather it's completely misused in the context of crypto i don't know if i tweeted this or, or thought about tweeting it but i feel like in 2017 someone would say it's a ponzi and you'd respond okay i'm not gonna touch that but in 2021 if someone said it's a ponzi you'd respond how much am i putting in or where do i where do i get my allocation 
before the night. All right, falls. let me let me tell you where where we kind of went wrong on on the crypto side. I mean, I don't think we actually did anything wrong. I think kind of the broader reframing of a lot of the mechanisms in traditional financial markets as potentially unsustainable kind of branded those as you know Ponzi light, and you know everything in crypto has been reframed in the narrative of you know this is growth hacking and we're bootstrapping up to a point, but at that point it will become sustainable, and. You know, people obviously take this too far in some contexts and like, you know, some of the algo stables that have blown up are, are very good examples of of things that never really reached escape velocity. But I do think it is an important concept to understand that, you know, just because something is being super aggressive and, and using reflexivity to get out of its current, you know, cold start state, you know, I think people call it Ponzi because it's funny, but it also is a very real way to get to scale. And, you know, as much as people hate on UST, you know, what has happened is actually very remarkable. You know, it started as an uncollateralized stablecoin where, you know, when Luna went up, it would print more stables. But Doe has managed to get to a hard asset collateral to back this thing. There's a good chance that UST hits $100 billion and becomes one of the premier stablecoins because of all of the mechanisms that were deployed to get there. So it's hard to disaggregate the two sometimes, but it's, you know, Ponzi is probably not the right word, maybe like growth hacking or token economics, but you know, there is something there with the reflexivity and just the feedback loops of tokens specifically. Yeah, it's like once it hits a certain threshold, there's an escape velocity that allows it to uh, transcend Ponzi, Ponzi-nomics, <laughs> Ponzi-economics. Right. And, and like, you know, let me, one more thing, like, you know, SoftBank putting billions and billions and billions of dollars into Uber and, and Michael and I in, you know, 2014 were able to take Ubers around San Francisco for $3 and get you know, like all of these value added services from Uber, like that was a Ponzi, like they dumped a ton of money in upside down unit economics in the hopes that it would eventually right size and scale and it did. And so, you know, our brothers in the traditional finance and technology world are also aware of these things and, and they've used them. And I think it's important not to forget that. Did you want to chime in there, Michael? Well, no, I mean, extremely well said. I, I think the the elements of growth hacking, the elements of upside down unit economics, you know, are exactly that. You know, these are the same elements that we've seen before. It's just we've put a different moniker on it. And we're probably going to see growth hacking become probably the norm of how we describe this. Ponzi probably gets too much ire of, uh, you know, people who are, are looking in uh, at our industry with with slanted eyes. And and I think the, the question there is, you know, how do we how do we change that? Uh, and in the same way that we've moved from web from crypto to web three, I think, you know, the narrative can shift, but it'll still be the same elements. So one thing that like obviously has been I don't know if this t- is tied the, the degree to which this is tied to blockchain gaming, but I know it's something you guys are looking at and everyone's kind of thinking about because of Mr. Musk and his bid to buy Twitter. So, Vance, you recently tweeted that all new social networks will be on chain. So what needs to happen? Like what parameters need to be there for a successful on-chain social network? Does Musk bring Twitter there? What is your um, prognostication of, of that? Yeah, so I, I think there's kind of two paths for this to really happen. And, and, and the first is, you know, we build some sort of blockchain where all of the, you know, effectively messaging, posts, metadata, are you know built on this blockchain and anyone can build a client on it. You know, I can go and, and build my own front end, which is you know the Vance theme social network. And I'm just pulling all of Frank Chaparro's posts and Michael's posts that are on chain into my own UI. And you know, really that's kind of the uh, the default state of, of where things end. The other you know possibility of of achieving this kind of eventuality is you know 
we figure out some combination of IPFS and the storage protocols, and those act as effectively the message storing you know, primitives, and, and we bring those on-chain with a new UI. And, and that's kind of more of an approach that our portfolio company Satellite is taking. I think the larger meta point is that it's just silly for you know anybody to buy you know a modern day social network. It's a collection of old posts, bots, you know, a client with declining usage, um, and a real monetization problem. You know, over time, people are just going to gravitate towards on-chain social networks because they have financial primitives embedded, and because there's just going to be a wealth of client diversity. You're going to be able to take your posts, your messages, whatever things you post on-chain, take them, put them into a different client. If you stop enjoying, you know whatever current client you're on. You know, if the Twitter algo bugs you, you can go and put your data into some other social primitive. And so that's kind of really the future that we see. And I think there's been a lot of prognostication as to, you know, maybe social media won't end up chain on chain or, or maybe, you know, blockchains will kind of top out with a financialized game use case or something like that. But client diversity and the ability for these things to actually bootstrap new competitors is the sole reason that they will succeed. And I believe, you know, fundamentally the killer app of of why it will be super popular. Interesting. So is Mr. Moss effort or or can he do something viable with Twitter? Like your your sort of um thesis here is that better off just starting off from first principles as opposed to taking an existing network and trying to cryptofy it. I mean, my my perspective with the whole Twitter kerfluffle is that this is more of a show as to less of a a positioning of Twitter, the the Web three native, you know, protocol. I think one of the big elements that uh, you know, with Twitter in particular, it's always thought of because it's more friendly to uh, to Web three and and kind of integrated with PFPs and um, you know been first to move from that respect. I, I think that there's some element of people wishing that this was to be the case. I think the other thing that I would add to Vance's point on on the, you know the positioning of what the future of social networking you know could be is that you're going to be able to have microcosms of social networks that aren't at at the scale of Twitter or Facebook or Instagram and you're going to be able to have local communities or regional communities or smaller communities that are able to build their own social networks out of these platforms and i think this is what's happening you know today with with some of the stuff that's happening with moonbirds and and proof you know you're able to define and you know flamingo dow you know friends with benefits there there's so many of these examples of you know contain social networks that exist around web3 elements but and and i think you know you're going to have single issue single single point or um single connection uh social networks that are defined through web3 but i don't think it's going to be something where you can you know write the ship of twitter all the employees that are there you know have it go through to web3 native move it from a public company to a private company you know that that just is like trying to to write a massive ocean liner um, as it's already running but I, I do think that there's going to be elements that break off from the Twitter concept and could be applied to you know some of these more new and novel social networks that may be smaller in size, but more specific in nature. I also think that just these Web2 businesses are, are kind of strangling themselves under the weight of their own network effects and, and the existing search engine optimization paradigm. And it, it really feels like talking to Gen Z, Gen A people, they have no proclivity to hop on Twitter, to hop on even Instagram, really. Snapchat and TikTok are, are kind of the new social networks that that have come about and, and are relevant to them. But you know, there's a natural cycle of these things living and dying. And, and it's just more likely than not that the next ones that really spring up are going to be 
because of some sort of new type of use case that is, you know, frankly, financialized and able to pay them for their time and effort and, you know, life that's spent on the internet. Where are you finding these 13 year olds for your market intelligence gathering? I got a couple of really good nephews. Uh, they keep me. They keep me. Con- yeah, that's your alpha right you- there. Your 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 siblings oh, having yeah. all these I, children. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Blaine and Patrick for for keeping me close to the metal. So, do you ever talk to them about this stuff? Oh yeah, lots of times. Yeah. What are those I mean, conversations they're, look they're, like? Uh, those conversations usually look like um, you know they don't have debit or credit cards, and so for for a certain extent, you know they're asking for their parents' permission to interact on chain. But really, kind of the things that they're most interested in are, are NFTs and games, and you know the games that they play aren't like Call of Duty and Halo or like really intense League of Legends. They're playing Among Us, which is kind of like this social crafting game where you're trying to figure out you know it's almost a clue style murder mystery. Those are the games where like the NFTs that we see, the utility that they're starting to build where, you know, you you have one NFT, you put it together with another one, you go on a scavenger hunt, you play internet game, which is kind of like squid game, but with NFTs, you know, these are the use cases that they're super excited about. And it they're just, they're going to be coming like, you know, once they hit, uh, you know, the proper age where they have their own financial means, these are the first things that they're going to be playing around with in earnest. It's not going to be Instagram. They're largely over that. I mean, most of them have, fake Instagrams, if they have any at all. It's just a new type of, you know, frankly, preference model for, for them. Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling in rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Cross River. Building the next big thing in crypto? Then it's time to get your fiat on and off ramp solution from Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. Cross River is powering the future of financial services. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on and off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com slash crypto. So we haven't really talked about NFTs that much. To what degree do they fit into the blockchain gaming uh, thesis that you guys have? 
is it a cornerstone? Do, I mean, do they need to be a core component of any blockchain game? So I think it really depends on the game. But when we think about what Web3 gaming has as an advantage over Web2 gaming, it's the elements of being able to, as we've discussed, get paid for the time that you're playing, You know, have some sort of income element by opening up your computer, but really be able to develop something that you have ownership of. And, and really, when we think about you know, our definition, you know, framework's definition, Vance and my definition of the metaverse, it's not really in this view or this lens of augmented reality or virtual reality, and we're stepping into this new world. Our view is that it's really about having property rights that are on chain and control and ownership of something that's digital and scarce. And so in a lot of respects, NFTs are that encapsulation to a T. And I think when we talk to Web2 gamers uh, or Web2 game developers about what they want to build, you know, a lot of it right now is let's take a game and let's you know replace the characters or the artifacts or the attributes with NFTs, and we'll build the game in that way. And I think you know that's definitely a step in the right direction. But really, that's like only half a step in the right direction. When you really need to think about what the potential for these ecosystems could be. NFTs feature prominently in that vision, but you also probably need some sort of fungible token. You need some sort of fuel or some gas or some resources that you'd be able to use and spend in the game. And you also need to be able to have the portability of having NFTs or these ecosystem assets themselves be able to move from one ecosystem to the next. And so, you know, our definition of the metaverse is more about, you know, having control and ownership of those assets. And so, yeah, NFTs is probably the cornerstone if, if you know, the game requires it. But uh, if if it's not an NFT, it's it's going to be some other asset where you have ownership, and and that's really our definition of Web three gaming. It's the ownership which defines the metaverse. There's the M word. It's always it's always looming. It's always sitting behind he, us, breathing breathing down our neck. I think since we brought up the M word, it might be worth defining the term. What is the metaverse and is blockchain gaming effectively the metaverse? How are they connected? How are they maybe not connected? Vance, you want to define it? So the way that we kind of see the metaverse is is a couple different ways. Um, I don't think it has to do with, you know, televideo presence. I don't think it has to do with AR or VR. For us, for Michael and I, we think the metaverse is basically, you know, a way that you can open your computer and, and start, you know, being employed by, you know, a blockchain based game by being an LP in a DeFi protocol. It's about employment, it's about self sovereignty, and it's about strong property rights. And the reason why we don't think the metaverse is about, you know, VR, AR is because, you know, the thing that Mark Zuckerberg is building has none of those things. It takes a 47.5% creator fee when any NFT or content is issued, it really just has no credibility as a, as a neutral economic platform that people can build their lives around. And that, in the end of the day, is, is really kind of what we see the metaverse as. And so, you know, when you have a blockchain and, you know, someone in the Philippines can log on and play a play to earn game for 5 or $10, and, you know, the chances are is that they're going to be very attached to that platform, much more so than something like Facebook or Instagram, where they can't make any money off of. And so, our thesis is that the metaverse is going to develop around these self-sovereign financial platforms that are built on blockchains. And at the end of the day, the metaverse is just simply going to be a euphemism for digital employment, your ability to turn on your computer and start making money no matter where you are, wherever in the world. And we think that play to earn games or, or games that are built on blockchains are, are probably going to be the largest employer of private citizens 
within the next 10 years. Um, and that'll be a monumental shift where some of these games will look like entertainment. Some of these games will, will look like speculation, but a lot of them will look like universal basic income experiments. And we're excited for that. To an extent, it's basically just taking it's taking the everyday life of the average person, which is, I don't know, 50% online, 60% online, maybe more in some cases. It's the same amount of time being spent, but now you're actually extracting value from it. I would say not necessarily extracting value, but you're earning value based on the actions that you're taking based on your online life. And and you know this goes back to the question around social networks. It's just really the concept of opening up your laptop and having that form of employment be something that you don't necessarily need to show up to an office. You don't necessarily need, you know, to be working for a company. And it's not really, you know, employment. I think is you know one kind of strict way of looking at it. But but I think earning income is is probably a better kind of intermediate step. Where just being able to be online means that you have an opportunity to participate in networks and ecosystems. You know, whether it be staking in DeFi, whether it be you know play to earn games. Uh, whether it be some social network concept that we haven't even thought of yet, where you're able to earn based on your engagement and your following and your activity, you know, those are those are the types of things that we think, you know, opening up your computer and being able to earn online is is really kind of core to the definition of the metaverse and, and probably more akin than what we've seen in in the colloquial definitions of you know Facebook and Meta. And Frank, to your earlier point about extracting value, it doesn't have to be, and and Michael kind of said that as well, but you know, if, if we're all in a, you know, non-zero-sum blockchain-based game where the more attention and time and people that we pull into it, the more value we create communally, that's when you create, you know, community. That's when you create identity. That's when you create a paradigm that actually matters to you. And, and I think mattering to you is some function of your ability to, you know, create and realize value from a platform. And that's just totally, you know, non-existent in Facebook and Instagram. You know, that's never going to be the case. And so, you know, the metaverse for us is, you know, a way to effectively be employed on chain without that, you know, strict definition um, and create community and create value and create identity through something that you actually care about, which is, you know, something that's frankly paying you money. Okay, Vance, last time you came on, you said we were no nowhere near a top and I went ultra mega long and lost millions and millions of dollars. What happened? What happened to all that capital that right there, was sitting yeah. on the sidelines? So I think a couple things happened. Uh, the first one was that, frankly, crypto just got internally overheated. And I think after we had that conversation, the IPO happened, and then Bitcoin, you know, ran to whatever its all-time high was. So you know, not technically incorrect, but you know, certainly not what I expected from the market either. The other thing that happened was just, frankly, interest rates rising. And you know, when you're in the middle of a very bullish cycle, and then people start saying they're going to tighten very aggressively, it's never really a position that. You, know, you can anticipate or or really you know want to be in, and so I think now today you know being kind of in the middle of of the of the rate hike cycle, with crypto hanging in there for 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 better or for worse is a positive sign for us that you know once the amount of bad news that has already been baked in the market is starting to be realized you know COVID World War Three, supply chain difficulties inflation, you know once that eases off you know crypto is going to be the first asset class to recover and at least in our opinion it seems like they're going to be the next generation of software leaders are going to be born from you know what's being built today and you know the traction and usage and and profit and revenue numbers speak to that yeah macro is definitely in the driver's seat 
So, okay, we've got a few more minutes. Maybe we can talk about some things we're anticipating for the next six months in the short term. What What's going to happen that's going to really shape the conversation? What are you What are you two anticipating? So I think there's a couple of things in in the short to medium term, let's say six to, to nine to 12 months. And going back to us uh, and our origination with Framework is we've always been very – very ETH heavy in terms of our focus, not necessarily the, the asset itself, but just kind of where attention and, and entrepreneurial spirit is aggregating. But ETH is about to go through one of the most fundamental shifts that we've seen from any asset kind of in the history of, of you know, capital markets where you, know, you almost have a multi-hundred billion dollar, <laughs> multi-hundred million dollar asset that's going to go through a, a major infrastructural shift and uh, and I think this this opportunity is one of the unique aspects that you know we're looking to in the next couple of months. And you know, the closer that we get to it, the closer the shift you know, of to proof of stake is going to happen, and it's going to be de-risked. And so I think this is going to be a major catalyst. You know, to Vance's point, coming out of some of the macro headwinds, we're going to see a lot of really interesting stuff. You know, just from the macro and institutional adoption rate of an asset that's going through this transition. And so, so that's one of the things. I think the other thing, you know, to go back to the games comment is you know there's a number of games probably 5 to 10 that are massive huge opportunities potentially triple a rated games that are going to be launching in the next 6 months which will will kind of de-risk this concept of gaming being the next paradigm of blockchain applications because we're going to see you know more than just Axie Infinity as the example product as the example ecosystem and so for us those are probably the two major themes that we're looking to over the next six months, but I'm sure we're going to be surprised with something that we haven't even thought of yet. There's always surprises lurking. Yep. The, uh, the other one I would say is, um, you know, like I, I do think that staking is going to be the biggest event that happens this year and it will be the birth of the, of an industry on, on the kind of earlier stage side, I would say that, you know, it's, it's never been easier for, for startups to raise a seed. It's never been harder for them to raise a, a series A slash B. Um, and, and you're going to see some consolidation, you're going to see some startups shut down, you're going to see, you know, valuations come down as well. Um, we're, we have success criteria or cases for, for blockchain games and DeFi applications, but, you know, frankly, there was just a ton of projects funded in 2021. And I think a lot of them are doing soul searching about, you know, what does product market fit look like? You know, what are their expectations for the next three, five, 10 years? And we're going to see kind of who the true believers are and, and who the, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, blockchain tourists are, but I think that's healthy. And, you know, every day we see more and more talented founders, but there's definitely going to be some soul searching on the earlier stage side for a lot of these teams. You reckon given the amount of money that the paradigms and A16Zs and the frameworks have under their belt, I mean, they've got to put it somewhere. Are you anticipating VCs acting a bit more cautiously and thereby kind of, you know, that might translate into lower valuations. I think it really depends on stage. And at the earlier stages, we're starting to see some trickle down effect of the public markets, you know, having a little bit more of a bearish tone leading into the private markets. And it's starting to get there, but it's really not a bear market on the on the private side. To Vance's point, it, you know, it's very easy. It's never been easier to be able to raise a seed, but it's never been harder to break out. And breaking out is now the most difficult thing. Uh, and I think you're going to start to see a lot more uh, activity with the larger funds around potentially liquid assets, where you see, you know, at 
maybe Series A, Series B level, but you've got a liquid token and it's it's tradable and there's not a ton of liquidity and, and it hasn't really done too much, you know, you're going to start to see some venture funds go in and, and potentially buy public public assets, public tokens, or do treasury purchases. And, and you know, that's something that we've employed before as well. And so I think you're going to see a lot of these venture funds get a little bit more creative than the traditional model of, you know, buying a private round or, or buying uh, equity in a, in a business before there's anything that any token that exists. And that creativity, I think, will lead into some of the things that you're referring to is, you know, it, it's just going to look a little bit different, but the capital is going to definitely need to go somewhere, whether it's public assets, private assets, treasury assets, you know, they're going to be deploying at a faster and faster clip as as you know these funds raise more and more capital. We shall see. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Can't wait to have you guys back on. Of course, we have the framework team here, Mr. Vance Spencer and Mr. Michael Anderson. Thanks so much for stopping by. Where can where can people learn more about what you two are cooking? Follow us on Twitter or Go to framework.ventures. Those would probably be the two best places. Parfait. Perfect. Well, thank you, Frank. No, my pleasure. Frank, your beauty. Love it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be back with you again with another great guest, or maybe two, as we did today. Talk to you soon.